electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Well, good evening here and good afternoon out west. And welcome, everybody, to Last Call. Busy and, dare I say, important hour ahead, including more concern about escalation around Ukraine. But first up tonight on Last Call, fears around banks now taking a scary global turn. And we've got you covered on all angles that story with the reporters right there. They've been breaking the headlines. Wave hi, everybody. See you in a second. We're going to get to them in a moment, but let's get you caught up on the banking crisis and what you need to know right now. Shares of Swiss banking giant Credit Suisse collapsing today, down nearly 14% to just over two bucks. This was a $70 stock before the financial crisis. Now, that news rocked many other big banks today. And like our government did on Sunday night, the Swiss government is trying to calm everybody down by saying it will provide liquidity, you know, access to cash and credit if Credit Suisse needs it. So you're sitting home going, OK, I know this, Brian, but what does that mean to me and my money? OK, there's two important points on why you care or at least should about Credit Suisse. First, it is one of only 30 banks in the world listed as systemically important. Others on that list are called g if you care, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, the Bank of China and more. Credit Suisse is big. It is really big. In fact, their balance sheet lists $486 billion in liabilities. For context, Silicon Valley Bank, I'm sure you've heard about them lately, had just $195 billion in liabilities. And unlike SVB, Credit Suisse is a major trading partner with nearly all the Wall Street heavyweights. At least, it was. Point two, bets on a bankruptcy of Credit Suisse are at a record high. That is not our opinion. The insurance on the bank's financials, known as credit default swaps. You may remember those from 2008, 2009. Look at that. They are soaring. If you're on the radio, just picture a line going straight up. Now, all this happening is our regional bank bust fears roll on. First Republic and PacWest both tanking again today. First Republic got its credit rating taken down to junk status. And as we said on our Sunday night special, Even with the massive government bailout or rescue, whatever you call it, the problems are likely not over, at least not yet, because that is not how banking crises in the past work. Now, the good-ish news, all of this could have been a lot worse for your macro money. All in all, the macro markets held up better than some expected. The Nasdaq finding buyers at the end of the day and actually finished in the green. And some other batter dames like Charles Schwab also closed higher. But rising global recession fears taking down one big group, and that was energy. Oil and oil stocks tanking, crude below 70 bucks. Remember, that is the level where the Biden administration said they may start refilling America's depleted oil reserves. Of course, covering OPEC as I have, you wonder if OPEC will step back in here and maybe try to firm up prices. We'll stay on that story for another night. But let's stay on this complex and let's face it, often confusing story, but one that does matter a lot to your money and bring in our panel. That is CBC banking reporter Hugh Sun, Wall Street Journal reporter and writer Gunjan Banerjee, Axios business reporter Dan Primack and Thomson Reuters editor 
Alisa Martinuzzi joining us from overseas as well. Thank you for all of us. Uh, Gunjan, I want to start with you. We ended pretty well, but earlier this morning, it looked grim. You had a story out sort of on Treasury trading. The one thing about these, these banking crises we've learned back in 08 and 09 and before that is that weird parts of the market starts to get hit before the general public understands it. What are we seeing happen? That's right, Brian. I think what we saw today was one of the most important markets on the planet, the U.S. Treasury market, really show intense strains. I was on the phone with traders all day who were telling me, look, it's really hard to get trades done. You know, the difference between buy and sell prices for treasuries are way wider than they usually are. That means it's tough to get in and out of positions. They were saying it was more expensive to get trades done. And, you know, that's put traders on high alert when you see a market as important as the Treasury market showing poor liquidity, showing signs of strain. So I think people are wondering what other strains are out there. Yeah, and I want to be clear. I'm sure a lot, Hugh, of our viewers and listeners have heard about Credit Suisse. I want to make a couple points very clear. Number one, Credit Suisse has been in trouble for a long time. This is not a new story. This has been going on for years. $70 stock down to two over about 15 years. Number two, this is not really related at all, is it, to what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank? Maybe it's sort of on the side of it, but this is a major bank, one of the 30 most important in the world, that's got a lot of its own problems. Hey, Brian, yeah. You that's know, right. Go ahead, go ahead. Hewson first. Yeah, for sure, you know, uh, Credit Suisse, as you point out, has been limping along for years now, but it does feel like we are potentially in the end game in terms of, of the resolution for Credit Suisse. And the reason why is unrelated. I mean, you know, we had three, three banks uh, fail in the United States here. And all of a sudden, investors are awoken to the risks and, and uh, fears and concerns that have been building up on the balance sheets of the, the banking system uh, that hasn't really been appreciated up until this point. One of the, one of the concerns essentially being, you know, what, what are the, uh, you know, how sticky and how solid uh, are the bank's funding uh, sources? And as you, you know, as we talked about with Credit, with credit Suisse, uh, you know, they've lost uh, 37% of their deposit base in the fourth quarter alone. Those losses probably continued all the way up until this month. Uh, and then if you look at, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, you know, clearly they had a run in, on deposits as well that ended up proving, proving fatal. So, you know, there are sort of touch points between the two banks. But clearly, you know, Credit Suisse is, is, you know, is a story that feels like it could be coming to a conclusion. Well, Lisa, let's go there. And again, we got to watch what we say. All right. We don't want to be the ones pouring gas in the fire. So I'm going to let the market speak for me. OK, can we throw the credit default swap chart back up for Credit Suisse? The insurance on the debt, basically the risk, the, the sort of the odds of a bankruptcy are spiking to levels we have never seen before from almost any major bank ever, even in 2008 and 2009. Elisa, that said... Is there any positive story here? The executive chairman was on a panel with CNBC today, actually, in Saudi Arabia, said we think we're going to be fine. What are, if any, bulls around Credit Suisse saying? Well, I think what you have to take into consideration is, you know, the very, um, very um, blatant and very sort of um, comprehensive statement that came out of Switzerland um, late this evening. You know, they will provide liquidity for Credit Suisse if needed. That is basically, you know, akin to Mario Draghi at the height of the of the crisis saying, "We'll do whatever it takes." So that has taken a lot of risk off the table in terms of the liquidity concerns that people had about Credit Suisse. 
Yeah, you know, okay, okay, Lisa, I, wanna, I, wanna, I, I do want to follow up with you, and we'll get to Dan in just a second on Silicon Valley, but I want to follow up with you because you're making an important point, but spoke with a number of people today, and one of them said something, and this was somebody deeply involved in 08 and 09. They can provide all the liquidity that they want, but if that liquidity and the warm words from politicians does not help with the more important thing, which is trust, they're in big trouble. And that Wall Street, and I mean that colloquially as a global issue, is a trust game, no matter what politicians say, if BNP Paribas or Morgan Stanley or others won't trade with you, you're done. Well, uh, I take your point, but you know, you do have you know, the, the Swiss central bank now backstopping um, Credit Suisse. So I think you may not want to be you know, engaging perhaps with, with Credit Suisse. You might see clients maybe thinking about taking their business elsewhere, but you know, there, is, there is no doubt, you know, based on what we're seeing from Switzerland tonight, that you know the, the the central bank is is behind Credit Suisse. So I think what you've got at Credit Suisse now going forward is potentially um, you know they still need to resolve the reason that they're in the middle of a of a very big sweeping overhaul, which is they need to restore profitability. Now the this, this, these measures today aren't going to help that, right? They still need to address the causes yeah. of why they're not making enough money. Um, yeah, and, and Dan- that. Uh, thank you, Elise. I want to go to Dan. Dan, because this kind of, kind of, it's not related necessarily, but I think to Elise's words saying, you know, we'll do all we can. We heard that Sunday night. We heard that from President Biden. I think it was on, on Monday. We're basically going to do whatever it takes to shore up the banking system. It worked for about a minute. I mean, PacWest and others falling double digits again today. It doesn't appear that the Silicon Valley Bank sort of blast radius is over just yet. It's not because in part, because we don't really know the Biden administration would really do what it takes, which potentially was allowing another bank, possibly, you know, a systemically important one to buy SVB on Saturday or on Sunday morning. You know, all indications are was that big banks were told, stay away. We don't want you to get even bigger, either because of legitimate antitrust reasons or kind of political blowback reasons. We don't know for sure if that would have solved, you know, and, and precluded what we've seen today and on Monday. But it was the best option. Instead, they kind of went for option B. They're still hoping to get a buyer with the backstop, but they went backstop first. If they, if somebody had stepped up, if Goldman or J.P. Morgan had stepped up on Saturday afternoon to buy it, we might not be having this conversation today. Well, what, Dan, one more to you. I mean, wouldn't the government backstop make it easier to be bought? Let's say I want to, I want to buy, or you want to buy my car. I'm going to sell you a 1975 Chevy Vega. Trust me, Dan, this thing is in spectacular condition. I can see you in it. You don't trust it. But I got somebody behind me says, Dan, if it doesn't run, I'll give your money back. You know, rich uncle money bags can do it. Wouldn't that help sell Silicon Valley Bank, knowing that they basically have Uncle Sam backing up the Vega? Yes, but no. Yes, that would have been true if they had made the decision they made Sunday night, say on Friday night. Sure. And then somebody might have come in to buy it. Uh, again, somebody have to be a regional or something because they don't seem to want a big bank. The one thing, though, that isn't being offered, at least to our knowledge, and, and the FDIC is going to reopen the auction for SVB, either in whole or in parts, is a question about liability. If somebody agrees to buy kind of the core commercial bank, they're not going to have weeks and months to do due diligence here, and they're not going to get any protection, it doesn't seem at least right now, from the U.S. government in case once they get in there, they open the closet and a ton of skeletons fall out. Yeah, you know what, Hugh, I want to go to you because you actually did a story today. Everybody go to CBC.com and read it. I was getting stuff from a VC in out west. 
The new CEO of Silicon Valley Bank apparently, I guess, had a massive conference call or Zoom or something with a bunch of venture capitalists. And I got the transcript. Somebody basically sat there and typed and then asked questions. Mm-hmm. They yeah. sent me the transcript. And I know you got it as well. I'm going to read something from this. New loan agreements are being worked on as of last week. We should basically re-engage and pick up where we left off. I'm, I'm quoting the new CEO from the people that were in the room. You got it as well. It sounds like Silicon Valley Bank is just going to be like, hey, nothing happened. Let's keep going. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, uh, you know, I think he did uh, allude to potential asset sales uh, and potentially a sale of uh, the company itself uh, and or the potential need for capital injection. So, you know, it was really him almost pleading with the VC community to say, look, you guys aren't passive in this. You can come back and really support, uh, you know, this institution that is so important to to the Valley for for, uh, the past few decades. So it really is, you know, uh, there, I, it just strikes me how many parallels there are with the Silicon Valley Bank story, as well with the Credit Suisse story. Obviously, there's some huge differences, you know, uh, systemically important institution on one hand and a, a local regional on the other. But, you know, in both cases, you know, there is discussion yeah. of M&A, right? And so with the, you know, the, with the case, uh, the case of Credit Suisse where, you know, there is discussions of, and it's been long rumored, so I'm not breaking anything here, but that they would try to form a national champion within uh, the Swiss government. So UBS... Uh, and Credit Suisse being forced to somehow mash together and would be never, a single strong yeah, company. I, I, I can't, can't see that happening because then you destroy UBS's balance sheet in a way. Gunjan, uh, last word to you. Uh, I was shocked by your reference to the article to COVID-19. Is it that bad among traders? Like things are, of course, you know, listen, it's their industry, banks. So they're all probably going to panic a little bit more than maybe they should. You know, Brian, I think in some respects, what traders told me was that at times it's been worse than what we saw during the March 2020 market crash. They really said, you know, I don't remember the last time things were this bad. I have not seen conditions like this in the Treasury market, in the bond market, in the swaps market in in my career. It was really, really quite alarming. And I think the, the bottom line is a lot of people are now looking out for, you know, what is the next tail risk event? What is the next black swan event out there? Because no one saw this banking crisis that's now spread to Europe coming. So I think that's really put a lot of traders on edge. Well, I wonder if that bird analogy of the Fed hawk will swoop down and, and gut that uh, black swan. We'll see what happens. Great panel, everybody. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. We are just getting warmed up. So on deck, forget about the bailout. Just wait until you hear how much Silicon Valley Bank executives made even like a year ago when the bank was starting to go down. And there's a new twist in the blame game for all this. An all-star panel will join us to analyze. That is coming up. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, 
which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome back to Last Call. And now to some space news. Why not? Because Richard Branson's Virgin Orbit is in a tough spot. CNBC's Michael Sheets reports the satellite launch company is furloughing nearly all of its employees and suspending operations for at least a week. It is desperately searching for a funding lifeline. That, according to sources, familiar. In an all-hands meeting with staff a short time ago, execs said they hope to provide an update on the situation in about a week. It's bad for investors, too. Shares tanking after hours down 35%. Now it's 63 cents. Virgin Orbit went public around 10 bucks a share, but its fall accelerated, literally, after its first UK rocket launch failed. A couple of months ago, for more on the story, go to CNBC.com. That's on the Internet. Meantime, the fallout from the banking crisis intensifying more this evening, with new scrutiny over just how much Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank executives were making in total compensation, even pretty much right up to the collapse Looking at data compiled by Morningstar for 2021, that is the most recently disclosed year. SVB CEO Greg Becker made nearly $10 million. Other executives hauled in impressive earnings as well, between $3 and $4 million or more. Meantime, over at Signature Bank, its CEO Joe DiPaolo made nearly $9 million in 21, and other executives made millions in compensation as well. To put it mildly, this is not sitting well with many people, including some lawmakers. Here's what Senator Elizabeth Warren told Squawk on the street earlier today. The executives paid themselves big bonuses, big salaries. Shoot, they were handing out big bonuses as the FDIC was starting to shut the bank down. Now, Warren's comments follow a letter she wrote to the now former SVB CEO asking him, quote, given the failure of SVB, will you agree to return any bonuses or compensation that you have received in the last five years? End quote. Joining us now is Wyoming Senator and member of the Senate Banking Committee is Cynthia Lummis. Senator Lummis, thank you for joining us. Do you, do you agree with your, uh, your Democratic colleague? Should we have a clawback of this pay or just ride it out? Oh, I think uh, clawback makes sense here, as do a lot of other issues. It's been known for a while uh, that these banks uh, were poorly managed. Um, and uh, the regulators also missed the boat on these. There were signs that uh, these institutions uh, needed uh, some regulatory scrutiny and they didn't get it. And we know the Fed had the authority to do the uh, necessary scrutiny and failed to do so. Yeah, and, and of course, like everything else, Senator, this has been politicized. And before anybody actually knew anything, we already heard the, the mantra, and I've heard it in the media as well, where you know, if we, if we didn't have that roll bank of the Dodd-Frank regulations in 2018, this would never have happened. I have spoken to exactly zero people that are nonpartisan banking experts who believe that. They said three of, I spoke to four yesterday, three said had no impact because they probably would have passed the stress test anyway, leverage capital ratios, et cetera. And one said, probably not, but let's try to figure out the latest stress test, get news before we know. Why is this devolved into some something around around a rollback of a rule that, by the way, could have been unrolled back over the last two years. Yeah, that rule didn't have anything to do with this. That is just subterfuge, trying to change the subject 
even Barney Frank of Dodd-Frank said that uh, didn't have anything to do with it. This was a liquidity issue. Uh, and uh, the Fed did have the authority it needed uh, to go in and investigate. So I hope the Fed will look at it, and I think Congress should too. So I think there needs to be some oversight by Congress. These banks were poorly managed, poorly. And then the regulators who had some indication that that was the case uh, didn't use their existing authority to go in and validate that. And here we are today in a situation where now other financial institutions may need to help bail out uh, depositors who had deposits in excess of the $250,000 limit on FDIC insurance. I don't think that's fair. I think small banks, community banks, uh, who have depositors, almost all of which are under $250,000 per account, are, they shouldn't have to bail out. Uh, these banks that were uh, taking much higher risk and depositors who were taking much higher risk and knew they were taking yeah. that risk. Yeah. And by the way, even if that rollback did have something to do with this, which I, most people I talk to don't think it did, but even if it did, if you've basically got control of the House and the Senate and the White House for full two years, you think if it's a priority, you could have gotten it done because you basically had a single party system. All right, Senator, I've got to get your thoughts on some breaking news right now regarding TikTok. Totally different issue. Senator, the Wall Street Journal reporting the Biden administration is telling TikTok's Chinese owned parent, it's called ByteDance, to sell its stake in TikTok or face a total ban. Your reaction? I think they're right. I think that uh, there's too much information that we have that TikTok has. Uh, connections to the CCP, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and quite frankly, uh, Americans got all upset when that balloon flew over the United States some weeks ago, but on this phone that everybody has, uh, TikTok is able to harvest your data all the time and provide it through ByteDance to the Chinese Communist Party. So I think it is yeah. important uh, and I support uh, Marco Rubio's bill. You used to, uh, Senator, to address I think you used to be issue. used to be a little more sort of centrist about it, or at least maybe not as hard line. What has changed on TikTok? Well, I think that our concern about China, about uh, their ability to surveil Americans, about their interest in having a uh, central bank digital yuan uh, that can surveil the, its users. Uh, its ubiquitous uh, response to uh, gaining control over strategic minerals all over the world, mm -hmm. uh, its, uh, and, and its oppression uh, of groups in China. Uh, the lies yeah. that they told about the origins of the Wuhan virus, uh, COVID-19, uh, these are all indications uh, that China's best interests are not our best interests. No, they're the Chinese Communist Party's best interests. I think we know that. Uh, this fascinating story, sell it or it's going to be banned in the United States. Senator, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. All right, up My next here on Brian. Last Call. Thank you. Ever wonder how Silicon Valley Bank and others got hundreds of billions of dollars of new free money in the last couple of years? Well, I want you to think COVID stimulus. But we're going to show you the massive numbers ahead.
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. All right, welcome back. It is time now for your RBI, the most random but interesting thing you may hear all day, CNBC style, of course. And right now, let's bring you something you are only going to hear here on Last Call. And it's a number so big. We might need to call Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson to help us make sense of it all. Listen to this. According to the federal government, the total amount of money deposited in American banks was $14.5 trillion. That is just before the pandemic hit in December of 2019. One year later, it popped to $17.8 trillion. And just six months after that, in June of last year, it had ballooned to $19.5 trillion, a jump of $5 trillion, more than the entire federal budget injected into banks in just two and a half years. What does that mean? Well, here's some context. It took almost 10 years before that for deposits to go up by that much. Generally, bank deposits have historically risen by about a half a trillion dollars per year, some more, some less. But of course, not when you have a pandemic and unprecedented spending and stimulus in response. And how much did Congress ultimately borrow and spend on COVID relief measures? Well, The numbers vary depending on your source, but most estimates, if you average it out, you guessed it, it's about $5 trillion. Now you combine that with nearly free money, you know, 0% interest rates for way too long as we now know, and it's probably or shouldn't be some big shock that a massive amount of COVID relief ultimately trickled down just right into the banks. A lot of people and businesses simply didn't know what to do with the money but sit on it, so they stashed it away at places like Silicon Valley, and Signature Banks. Now, sadly and ironically, we now know that some of those banks also apparently didn't know what to do with the money and maybe bought the wrong things. But man, these are some big numbers, random and hopefully interesting. It is time now for our panel for some insight, some analysis, and maybe a little discussion on today's topics. Joining us tonight, Strive Asset Management co-founder and chairman and Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy and former U.S. Senator Heidi Heidkamp of the great state of North Dakota. First up, Senator, you listen, we know this. The COVID money did a lot of good for a lot of families and businesses for a long time, particularly in 2020 when the pandemic first hit. Everything shut down. But did we overdo it? Because I traveled a lot during COVID. Much of America never shut down or didn't shut down for very long. And yet we kept stimulating. Is that part of the banking issue now or are we taking it one step too far? No, I think you're absolutely right, Brian. When you put that much money into the banking system and they can't find a place to park it, they make a bad decision, don't hedge their interest rate risk, and and this is what you end up with. But I think when you look back, the stimulus that both the Fed and uh, through fiscal policy and monetary policy provided really has to be looked at as one of the causations for the issues that we have right now. And I was, so, I was, I was I you know, Vivek, Vivek, you're for, you're 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 from Ohio. OK, I drove through Ohio 100 times during covid. and I went down to, you know, other Midwest, Texas, Florida, South Carolina, and I would come back home to New Jersey. And I'd be like, people are out. The restaurants are packed. And people in New Jersey have like scuba masks on going to the store. No judgment. But I realized that half the American economy was cranking on all cylinders. 
while the Federal Reserve and, and much of Congress was acting like nobody had left their home in two years. It just, whatever you think of it, it wasn't true. Oh, it was a big mismatch. I mean, money raining from on high like mana from heaven. That's going to create a lot of sins to pay for. This is one of them. I think a lot of market actors also lost their sense of discipline. I think that applies to a lot of these Silicon Valley startups that had money raining on them as well that completely lost the idea of financial discipline. I mean, the CFOs of multi-billion dollar unicorn startups believing that it's not even their responsibility to engage in any counterparty risk diligence, engage in any diversification. This is a symptom of a deeper culture of financial excess that we created for, yes, a decade and a half plus of Federal Reserve policies. I think the Federal Reserve has been playing God with a fat finger for far too long. That's a separate discussion, but accelerated by spending policies in this country in the name of COVID that both parties, frankly, are really guilty of. Both the Democrats and the Republicans are not blameless in this, but reining that money from on high, I think, is a big part of what gives us this payback period that we're now going through. Okay, Vivek, I'm going to come back to you because speaking of of paybacks, all right, there's been this fight over Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and this new unlimited FDIC thing. And by the way, we got Credit Suisse now going on overseas. Was this a bailout? Equity holders are wiped out. Bondholders are wiped out. Executives are being fired. You argue, though, it is not or it is a bailout, really, of Silicon Valley itself. Why? That's right. It's not a bailout of Silicon Valley Bank, but don't fall for the trick. This is absolutely a bailout of tech startups in Silicon Valley. Because you want to know why? They parked a lot of money. They made a financial decision to put that money with Silicon Valley Bank in return for private benefits that many of those tech founders receive. But you know what? When they lost that money, their venture capitalists and the founders could have filled that hole by raising more equity capital. They didn't want to do that. And ultimately, it was a lot easier for them to get bailed out as depositors instead. We have one set of rules for everyone in this country. Before, we said it's $250,000 for everybody. But when it was a bunch of Silicon Valley tech startups that made the bad decision, they ended up getting bailed out at the public fisc. And the irony is the very people who had said that Silicon Valley Bank is not supposedly some bank that's systemically important for years, this past weekend, we're clamoring, claiming that, no, 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 this is systemically important, that there's going to be a bank run next week unless we actually bail these guys out. And kudos to them for playing the game of cronyism as effectively as they did. This is corruption, but they got bailed out by the Biden administration. Yeah, Senator Heitkamp, I don't know. I honestly don't know what to think about it. Normally, I've got a pretty strong <laughs> opinion about everything, even if I'm wrong. I, I, I can see Vivek's point, but I can also see the point of some, some poor low-level employee at a startup in Columbus, Ohio, or Bismarck, North Dakota Fargo, which is like a, a little sort of mini up up top Silicon Valley, not getting paid because some tech bros wanted to bail out their jet. I can see. I... Well, I mean, I, I don't know how to respond to this. First off, when you say it's the public fisc, it's not. In fact, uh, FDIC today returned $40 billion back to the Treasury. This is an insurance fund that's being used to basically stop further runs on the bank. If you could that's have isolated if you could have isolated SVB and said, okay, there's no contagion, it's not going to be any problem. That's a different uh, uh, that's a different kind of issue than what we're talking about here. And I think the Biden administration acted responsibly. 
I think they prevented further uh, uh, demise of, of uh, small shareholders' uh, investments in their bank or deposits in their bank. It needed to be done. But what we need to do now is, again, do a look back. And I thought it was interesting, your discussion with the senator. I was one of the authors of uh, 2155, which is now getting beat up. But there was always the ability for the Fed to tailor. And, and we've got to look at why supervision failed here. Yeah. We've got to look at the, I, who's I think the that's victim changing the subject, though. I think, if it, with all due respect, I think that's changing the subject from the essence of what happened here. The idea that taxpayers are not paying for this indirectly is a myth. I know you're sophisticated enough not to fall for this. If the banks are paying for it, they pass on those fees to customers who are included in taxpayers. This was government arranged. It absolutely was yeah, a government that, arranged that, bailout. When, when you say the public fisc, you mean taxpayer money that no, is in the well, federal indirectly. treasury. I mean, this is and taxpayer not general money. Economic well, look, yeah, don't, the, don't, the just don't. Hold, hold on, hold on. One at a time. One yeah, at a time. I have two ears, but I can't hear both of you at the same you know, time. I just, just want to make sure you understand my point. There's indirect costs borne by American taxpayers. There's no denying that. But but I also want to say this idea is I think we're going to call a spade a spade. I mean, folks like yourself lobbied or voted, in fact, for the rollback of those Dodd-Frank regulations for banks like Silicon Valley Bank. Now, I was on your side of this. I think that that was the right decision. I applaud you for doing it because we need a robust regional banking system. But that was based on a premise that these banks were not systemically important. So you can't talk out of both sides of your mouth if they're not systemically important. And that was the basis for rolling these regulations back. You were on the other side of Elizabeth Warren on this. You were on the right side then. But you got to be consistent with those principles and say, if it wasn't systemically important, you got to treat it accordingly, play by the same set of rules that you specified ex ante instead of shooting from the hip and changing the rules for specially. Let Senator Heitkamp respond, please. The, in fact, the regulators could have designated a bill as significant because we allowed tailoring. It's not that we said we said, here's the bright line. You have to regulate the big banks this way. We're going to give you the ability to tailor your regulation. And if you see some systemic, you know, interest that that bank has, the regulators could step yeah. in and provide that same level of regulation. And so what we've got to do is we've got to find out why that supervision didn't, why it failed and what what we need to do to prevent this from and happening. But I think I think I just want to make this point about using the word federal fisc. What that means are dollars that the federal government collects in taxes. It doesn't mean other kinds of dollars in the economy. But, you know, Senator Heidkamp, I appreciate you saying that. And you're a Democrat. I'm sure these are your friends and former colleagues. What's driving, I think, a lot of people uh, mad is that before we even know what happened, there was this automatic narrative being put out, right? Some politicians said it, then some of the other parts of the media pick it up, that it's because of this rollback. They almost like they take two fact patterns. There was a rollback of Dodd-Frank and Silicon Valley Bank failed. Now, they may have nothing to do with each other, but they're, but they're each individually true. And so if you say them both at the same time, they kind of get mushed together. And right. whether or not... It does, nobody I talked to thinks they had anything to do with it or at least a major part of it. And what, the frustrating thing is we may now not know what happened. To your point, the San Francisco Fed, right? Great. The CEO was on the Federal Reserve Board. The California banking regulator, one of the main guys, retired in December. He hasn't been filled. They've got people like the head of the Screen Actors Guild on the San Francisco Fed not knocking these people. But I think do we need a complete reexamination of who's doing the examination. Well, I, I mean, I, I have looked and turned over 
21, 55, 100 different times since this happened. And I, I mean, I'm willing to say I was wrong. I can't see it. I can't see how 21, 55 caused this problem. A lack of supervision caused this problem, obviously. And it was cauterized, the wound was cauterized by basically backstopping the deposits with FDIC guaranteed funds. And so was that the right decision? I think that me and your other guests disagree on that, but I think it did stop a contagion from causing further problems that could in fact lead to dramatic impacts within the yeah. broad economy and as also, a whole. That's right, Senator. And Vivek, you know who else I would take a stab at here is just, you know, is the, the, the Wall Street sell side analyst community. I mean, was there any, it was 22 buys or holds on the stock. Was there any analyst who was like, you know, this bank doubled in size. Nobody on their board has any real banking experience and they seem to be involved in everything but banking. And we don't really fully understand. Nobody said a word. Not well, not that, a regulator, not, a, not an analyst. ESG funds were also disproportionately, G stands for governance. People forget that sometimes. ESG funds were actually disproportionately exposed to Silicon Valley Bank, which reveals that farce for what it is. And Silicon Valley Bank, ironically, last year made a $5 billion, that's billion with a B, commitment to sustainable finance for a healthier planet. You would think that the governance would have focused on a healthier balance sheet. But I do think that, look, yeah. I mean, look, if I were U.S. president, I think I would have handled this a little bit differently, where you can actually look at the facts. Silicon Valley Bank was in a different situation than most banks in this country. Uh, a different staggering, kind of bank. only 11 only 11 percent of its deposits were insured. That's it's right. very different than other banks across the country. And I think what we've created right now is the new risk of a new kind of moral hazard. Companies like Roku parked way too much money in one bank. We tell them that's OK. The public will bail you out. I think we could have separated yeah. how we handled Silicon Valley Bank, actually apply the rules of the road as they were in advance but then prospectively handle well, yeah. the situation for everybody else differently to shore up confidence with FDIC support and also with the Federal uh, and Reserve. I hope, and I hope lender. Vivek and, and Senator Heikamp, I hope this doesn't raise credit costs or tighten credit for the middle-class Americans that had absolutely nothing to do with this. Senator Heidi Heitkamp, Vivek Ramaswamy, appreciate it. All right, still ahead. Take a wild guess. What's some, some insiders are beginning to eyeball around the so-called banking mess has the so-called vampire squid itself re-risen? Andrew Ross Sorkin will join us on the curious role here of one Goldman Sachs. We're back with Andrew right after this. All right, welcome back to Last Call. And stop us if you've heard this one before, but Goldman Sachs' role in the current banking panic is under some growing scrutiny. According to Dealbook in the New York Times, Goldman Sachs is getting got a $100 million payout for handling the sale of $21 billion worth of SVB assets. For more on this developing story, it's Squawk Box anchor and dealbook head, Andrew Ross Sorkin. Andrew, appreciate it. No, it's been a long day for you. Congratulations to you. This, my, this is, uh, you know, longtime listener uh, or viewer now for a, about a week and a half. First, first, first time guest. So thank you for having me. No, love to have you on. Appreciate this. I know it's been a long day. You get up before it's light out and, and still dark out again. But I wanted to really get your take on this because I, I feel like we've kind of been here before. Goldman Sachs appears all over this. Complicated role. Complicated role for Goldman because here they are on one side acting as the advisor to the company in terms of trying to help them raise capital, uh, something they were unsuccessful at. And obviously, by default, the end result wasn't what you'd want. Uh, but even more importantly, they were playing advisor on one role, but ended up, if you really think about it, how did the confidence uh, you know, disappear, evaporate for this bank? 
it evaporated because they sold, that's SVB, sold $21 billion in, uh, in, in, in bonds that they took a $1.8 billion loss on. Well, who did they sell that to? They sold it to Goldman Sachs. And Goldman Sachs collects a fee in the form of effectively a discount. When they buy that, they buy it at a discount. So in many ways, they actually stood to make more money by buying the bonds than they would on any advisory fee to raise the capital. And by default, that creates its own conflict. And, and, and then we talked about this Sunday night in the special, Andrew. I don't know if you caught it. Gary Cohn was on, obviously the former CFO of Goldman Sachs. And I, and I asked him, I said, Goldman was taking some heat then because some people said right. the fact that they were sort of so widely broadcasting, if you will, this equity capital raise a couple of weeks ago tipped off smart people on Wall Street. Like, why the heck does SVB need a capital raise? Well, I think there was a tactical mistake. And, and there was a couple of things, by the way, which was, they, you know, SVB had a gun against its head from Moody's for the right reasons. They were trying to push that off. Goldman was trying to raise the money with the gun against everybody's head under a certain time frame. They couldn't get that done in part because it looks now that war. Uh, uh, um, oh, oh, what's the, what's what's I'm losing my my train of thought. But uh, one of the one of the private equity firms was actually going to buy in and then didn't. They did have General Electric, do, uh, General Electric, General Atlantic do it. And so there you had a situation where they had to go and raise capital from the public markets. Once they did that, well, that's what raised all the questions. Yeah, I think you're referring to Apollo, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. And by the way, don't apologize, Andrew. When I did Worldwide Exchange, we called it WEX internally. I would call my, I would say my wife, I got WEX brain. I would leave sinks running. I would walk into walls. All right, I, w- I want to change topics. Steve yep. Eisman, the famed big short investor who was portrayed by Steve Carell in the movie, yep. just said this about the banking crisis on Fast Money. Listen and respond. The large U.S. banks are better capitalized and have less risk than they ever had in anyone's lifetime. Uh, the European banks, while they're not as well capitalized, are certainly better capitalized than they are. Uh, that isn't to say there won't be pain if Credit Suisse goes down, but it's not, it's not an 08, thankfully. All right, you literally wrote the book on it, not an 08? Yep. I think he's right. I don't, I don't think it's an 08. I think it's possible we'll see additional bank failures, but I think this implicit guarantee that we've seen now on the deposits from the government changes that game at least a little bit. I mean, it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see how that works in practice if we actually get there. I think you're going to see some shotgun marriages, uh, some, you know, potentially some capital raises uh, by some of the smaller banks, but I don't think we're, we're in 2008. And I also want to say what we saw, you know, I was listening to you and Vivek and Heidi Heitkamp before, what we saw was a classic run on the bank. And we can blame management at SVP. I'm not sympathetic to the way they approached what they did. But there was a, this didn't have to happen. There was, there was a little, little smoke in the corner of the theater, a little smoke that could have been doused with some water. And in the process of trying, before they could douse it with the water, you know, there, people were screaming fire in this theater. And everybody ran for the exits. And that's what happened. And, and again, it doesn't take because any of the responsibility off the management of the company or the regulators or the supervisors or all the people that everybody wants to blame. But I think in the end, with perspective, we're going to look at this a little bit differently. I think there were so many different things that happened, somewhat idiosyncratically, that led to this. It, well, I would agree with that. And I was trying to explain this to, to some friends the other day, whatever. And I wonder, and I'm going to sound a little bit snobbish here, and I apologize, Silicon Valley Bank had a very elite, is that fair to say, elite client base? These are, it wasn't like a local bank where you'd go in and, like, totally. you know, and your aunt would go and have a checkbook way, and whatever. Most people, don't, all, like, most people, 
Yes, NBAs that were have- super dialed in, and when they when they saw that, to your point, Andrew, right. when they saw or smelled that tiny little smoke, these are people with Bloomberg terminals and 17 phones, and everybody's connected to everybody, right? Because they all went to the same business school, and boom, 42 billion in client withdrawal requests right. on Thursday alone. That would not happen. I don't think at any other reg, quote regular bank. Well, and the other thing was these were concentrated accounts, meaning most people have either most personal accounts. Are, People have less than $250,000. It's, it's all FDIC. These people had, you know, millions and millions of dollars of cash in their accounts. So it's a very different thing. By the way, we give them lots of credit for being, uh, you know, the smartest guys in the room after the fact, which is to say, yes, they all called each other and their friends and they tweeted each other and got out and ran for the exits, fire in the credit. That happened. But these are firms that all have CFOs, risk managers. They should know this. They should be able to look at a bank and say, you know, we got to think about this. I have family members who put $250,000 in one bank, $250,000, because they know how this works. These guys didn't do it. You know, uh, Andrew, I'm going to you're on. So we're just going to keep milking this because we got breaking news literally this moment. When you hear that music, you know, it's you know, it's breaking news. Uh, Bloomberg is reporting that First Republic Bank, ticker FRC, is said to weigh options including a sale stocks up 10% after hours, but it fell big time again today. I don't, I don't know if this is anybody a surprise to anybody, Andrew, but, but you wonder, will if they, it's well, true, this will is exactly find what I was talking to, to be honest with you, this was exactly what I was just talking about, uh, which is we're going to be seeing uh, first Republic, I think either in a merger situation or a major kind of capital raise situation uh, in the next week or two. I'm actually surprised that unlike what we saw in 2008, behind the scenes that we are not having government officials literally press on banks like First, First, First Republic Bank and some of the others that appear at least have there's even any uncertainty about them uh, to get their houses in order and get their houses in order almost immediately. I think one of the, the actual lessons of 2008 is you had government officials who had actually gone after Bear Stearns went down. They went to Lehman Brothers. They went to Dick Fold, the CEO of that company at the time, and said, you got to get your act, uh, act together. And he slow walked it. He didn't do it that fast. I think what we need to do is make sure these banks do it and do it now and get ahead of things. Yeah. And to your point, I have a friend of mine. He might be watching right now. No names. Former banker. Banks of the First Republic. A couple days ago, took all of his money out. Just said, you know what? I'm not going to be last in line because that's how it works. And these sort of panics accelerate. Do you think they could find a buyer? And if so, is there like a natural oh, I do fit? Think, no, no. Silicon I think Valley Bank was a actually- totally separate type of bank. No, no. I think First Republic is a, a, a valuable bank. I think they have valuable client relationships to the extent that they're not flighty relationships, if you will. Um, I think there's, there's, there's a, a lot of asset value there. There's a lot of folks on Wall Street who have a lot of respect uh, for that management team, uh, for parts of that business. Um, and so I think that you will see somebody get in there either to buy it out entirely or to put, put money into it. I, I, that, I think, is possible. I think it's it more complicated down the line with some of the other banks that might not have mm the same type of strategic value yeah. to a potential buyer. And, and totally, yeah, because that's like, quote, a regular bank versus Silicon Valley Bank, which is kind of a venture right. capital thing. Andrew Ross Sorkin, appreciate you coming on. Last call. First time, hopefully not It was last. war, but... Oh, go ahead, Andrew, finish it off. It's something nice. We want to hear it. It was Pincus. Warburg Pincus. That's what I was thinking about. That's it? Remember that's I... what you came back on, Warburg? There you go, Warburg Pincus. Well, and... you were asking, you said it was a. You said you th- thought I was thinking of Apollo. I wasn't. That, you know... It, for me, it's Andrew, late. You're, it's on like air, you're, on air, my you're on air in 10 minutes again on Squawk Box. We'll see you then. We'll be right back. See you.
All right, welcome back. We, we did a lot today. Markets clawing back a little bit. What are they going to do tomorrow? I don't know. Futures don't know either. You got Dow and S&P down a little bit. NASDAQ up, we'll call it, unchanged as well. So there you go. Banking thing still playing out. All right, that is your last call for tonight. But markets in Asia will start to open in just minutes. So CNBC Squawk Box Asia is going to take you through the next hour following a quick break. But don't worry, all you Shark Tank lovers, a brand new episode follows at 9 p.m. Eastern. So Squawk Box Asia, live for markets, your money, up next. We're going to see you tomorrow. Thanks for watching or listening. Take care. Hi, I'm Nick. I'm getting married today. I'm also a firefighter and first responder. When you move over and slow down, you're making sure I can make it to my ceremony to start the next chapter of my life. When you see flashing lights, remember, they're not just roadside workers. Thank you for moving over and slowing down. 